Hello and welcome to Business Line podcast. I am Nivedita Varadarajan. The COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted all aspects of our lives. Governments all over the world imposed strict lockdown and we had to learn to live our lives remotely. The biggest impact to my mind at least was on the children. Education systems across the world were brought to a halt and schools were closed. This affected more than 1.6 billion students. The initial worry in the start of the pandemic was how to ensure classes are conducted. But now we are getting to see that this will have a profound impact on the future too. This generation risks losing 17 trillion dollars in lifetime earnings in present value as a result of school closures a recent UNICEF report shows. In India, UNESCO noted that 321 million students were affected because of school closures. Schools and various state governments immediately started to hold online classes and even sometimes on the radio and on TV to ensure that students could have access to classes. But how effective was this learning? Given India's dismal learning levels and low internet usage, how have children and youth, especially those in marginalized communities, coped? Now that schools and classrooms are slowly opening up, what should teachers, educators and policy makers be looking at? Today, we have with us Rajeshwari Chandrasekhar, Chief of UNICEF Maharashtra to understand the issue better. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nivedita. So let's start at the very beginning. Uh, what was the initial policy like in the beginning of the lockdown? No one knew what was happening. India had a lockdown for 21 days only. So what was the initial policy plan in, during the first phase of the lockdown? You see, when we started with the lockdown uh, for the 21 days, it was nationwide and it meant every activity comes to a standstill, educational institutions included. So that meant that there was no movement, containment zones were coming up and schools were completely shut down. So the focus was to avoid movement of people and therefore, uh try to contain the spread of the infection so clearly the measures were directed towards uh, addressing a health epidemic as it first appeared to be uh, in the initial phases of 2020 when it was declared as a global pandemic so the idea of shutting down schools was that schools could also be a source of spreading infection and therefore all education institutions no matter primary secondary higher secondary were closed down mm-hmm. it was also thought that teachers who are in schools school staff could also be the super spreaders as also children who would go to schools could come back and infect those so and it was also remember in 2020 we did not have the vaccination program so clearly the focus was to prevent further spread of the infection by keeping people where they live indoors and that was how the pandemic was managed nationally and i would even say globally it was managed in that fashion by a complete economic social and political lockdown as i would say there was only one strategy and that strategy was stop people's movements except the migrants who of course was the other face of the problem where they had to go back because of loss of livelihoods in their current place of employment they are the only ones who migrated and migrated in such large numbers with their families and whatever was left of their belongings and that was the picture that one saw across in the national papers and in the television but otherwise all other institutions including shops 
and even banking institutions had come to a close. So that was the story in the beginning part of the pandemic, I would say. So what was this impact on the children? The impact was manifold. If I were just to talk of learning losses itself, the closures have already worsened what was an existing learning crisis even prior to the pandemic, right? And when you restricted physical movements because of lockdown, that actually meant that the children are now only dependent on remote learning opportunities, which obviously assume that we have very good quality learning material, which is very adaptable to online platforms, or that population have access to smartphones, radios, television, and internet. Now, we all know that such facilities are either limited, not adequate, and where they are is in the hands of very few people. So as a result, most children face the risk of learning losses. And this was the first impact of the lockdown on children. The fact that children faced the risk of learning losses. And the learning losses was not just for one month, two months, but it is something that is going to take years to address. And I want to uh, refer to uh, SCRT, which is the state, Maharashtra State Council for Education Research and Training, the SCERT, and a UNICEF rapid assessment survey that we did in November of last year, that is 2020, which showed that despite the best efforts of the teachers, we still had more than 36% of the children in Maharashtra not having access to any learning material during the 14 months since the lockdown. So this is what has been the impact on children. And plus, in addition to the learning losses, the children stopped communicating with their peers. It also impacted their overall emotional health. It impacted children's health and nutrition as well, because there was a fear and anxiety, and so loss of appetite, changed diets. So this is what was the impact on Also, many kids had to depend on the midday meal scheme for their food, for their nutrition. And that was, they didn't have access to that anymore. So there's a health, huge physical health aspect also. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, when I was talking to you about learning loss, uh, we are talking about children as of today, but these children will be productive workers for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But these uh, school closures have also impacted on the skillings that the students would have acquired had they gone to school, right? So when we introduced various distance learning strategies, they were there, they worked, but then the level of efficiency was in doubt because it was not uniform everywhere. So the conclusion would be that school closures do come at the price of learning. That's what I was uh, emphasizing. And you mentioned yourself about the state of global education crisis report, which says globally, uh, you know, in the low and middle income countries where the share of children living in learning poverty was already 53% before the pandemic, the estimates now say that the figure could as well reach 70% due to long school closures and ineffectiveness of remote learning. So that's what is the economic value addressed to the learning loss and the lost futures of children. And linked to education is the fact that because children are out of school, there is a greater likelihood that they will not return back to school for various reasons. And that will actually lead to worsening of the crisis, the learning crisis. Again, our own data, we don't have such robust data, but experience of pandemics do show that whenever there is a a crisis in learning, 
children either drop out because of marriage, they get married, or they go into the labor market, or they migrate. And again, referring to a UNICEF and a Maharashtra State Education Research Training Report of November 2020, we have 16% of the children already employed outside the home and at the risk of never returning back to schools. When you look at uh, nationally representative data on the same cohorts of mothers and their children over a period of 23 years, that study, that research actually shows that girls who had access to free lunches that you were mentioning earlier in the interview that was provided in the government schools had children with a higher height to age ratio than those who did not. So that means that the midday meal schools, midday meals have had intergenerational benefits on the children that were born to these girls. But with the school closures, the micronutrient supplements, the deworming tablets have all stopped. And this has in turn led to uh, an increase in anemia levels hmm. and also lack of physical activity. So all this has been the nutritional impact on um, nutrition, the impact of COVID on nutrition. Hmm. Then we go into the hygiene related, right? As another aspect here, uh, because of the prolonged school closure of schools, the regular repair either of the walls or of the leaking pipes or of the drainage has just been put on hold. Operation maintenance of the school infrastructure has not happened for over a year. Hmm. This has also impacted the school infrastructure, which includes the water sanitation and hygiene facilities. So this is the impact of closures on hygiene related infrastructure. And a last one that I would like to add in terms of impact is on the mental and psychosocial well-being. Because the children are not mixing up with fellow children in schools, it has actually increased their uh, vulnerability to mental and socio-emotional health. And again, um, they have saved, and this is also what parents of the children feel, where about a third of elementary students, according to their parents, and half of secondary students, again, according to the parents, felt that their mental and socio-emotional health has only got worse because of the pandemic. Uh, mm. And this is since May 2020. And, you know, you must have heard about the Lancet COVID-19 Commission India Task Force, which also mentions that the children's safety, physical safety, has been affected, therefore increasing their vulnerability to abuse, abuse of children. So uh, if this has been the kind of impacts, then what has, uh, ha what has happened to address them is that uh, you know schools and teachers have relentlessly worked during this period to reach out to as many children as they can to ensure that actually learning continues at home. There have been several innovations at the level of community, at the level of teacher, and at the level of the schools. But uh, as I've said earlier, despite all these best efforts, we still have some 36% of children in the state who could not access any learning opportunities during the school closure. And there's also no attempt actually to find out what impact has it been on learning levels, except one study by the Azim Premji University, which reveals that definitely there has been a definite loss in learning with children having lost the opportunity or even completely forgotten some foundational abilities that they had acquired when they were going to school. 
So this is what is the grim scenario of the learning losses. How do we address the inequality, the ineffectiveness in online education? Okay, so I think one of the lessons that the pandemic has taught us is that we need to be agile, mm. right? We need to be flexible and also inclusive of the different sections of children because as I've said earlier, children are not a homogeneous unit. Uh, we have to look at, uh, you know, child level plans. We have to assess the child from where he or she is at the time of the pandemic and then provide them flexible learning opportunities so that they can catch up on the knowledge and skills and come up to the rest of the children's levels. So this means that we need to be agile in terms of not only a face to face, but also using educational technology for providing them um, the online education wherever it is possible. So it's not either or, it is actually and. And in order to do this, Nivedita, we will have to you know, look at planning the learning recovery strategy for schools and for children. And this will mean, again, we will have to look at different levels, whether it's elementary, whether it is higher secondary, or uh, you know, higher than that for the schools. And at least for the next two years, we will have to look at how do you use technology for learning? And this will mean grade specific and age specific learning packages. So according to the child's age and stage in the learning, we will have to develop learning packages, which should include not just curriculum and subjects, but mental well-being as well, both of the children and of their teachers. And this will mean also, you know, to develop the capacities of the teachers for implementing such a learning recovery program and develop question banks for the teachers to use during school-based assessments. So one example of all that I'm trying to say is, if schools were to open now, the teachers should be sensitive enough not to start off saying, okay, let's start history chapter six, because 18 months ago, we stopped at chapter one. That's not the way. We'll have to first engage in a conversation with the children to find out where are they? What happened in their families? You know, get the emotional assurance and confidence from the children that the teacher is a safe person to talk to and to, you know, just bring out your feelings before we get into the actual mm -hmm. subject matter. And that's a, that is an element of capacity building that the teachers must also undergo. And teachers, because we're insisting on a hybrid model of online, offline, they must also, the teachers must also know how to do it together. Sometimes delivering classes uh, within a face-to-face -face scenario and sometimes remotely. And then this pandemic has also identified a lot of community volunteers who have helped identify children who are not in the, in the schools and brought them back into the school screen. We have to also build their capacities for supporting such children. I just want to mention of a pilot that we're doing in 100 schools of four districts of Maharashtra to actually operationalize this learning recovery plan that I'm talking to you about. We are calling it the back to school project, which is looking at the education in a very, you know, multi-sectoral approach. One, to look at uh, the environment, the physical environment of the school in terms of wash facilities on the school premise. And second part is, training teachers to support children to settle into schools, especially for those entering for the first time in their lives, especially the grades one and two. And we are hoping that this project will actually help 
demonstrate the diverse models of schools reopening, especially in urban areas, tribal areas, and rural areas, and suited to the specific needs of specific children in individual schools. Is there an easier way to go about this? Is, there, is it easier for the government to say, let all children do, this, uh, do their class again, say all third year students will do third year again? Is that an easier way to go about it? No, for the government, uh, see, there are no shortcuts here, let me tell you. We have to tailor make the learning package according to the age and according to the mental state of the child. We should not be in a hurry now, at least post the pandemic. I won't even say post, even now in this period of the pandemic, to rush back to learning as it was pre-pandemic, because already there was a, a deprivation in learning prior to pandemic. We should be very clear how to approach these children. We cannot say one size fits all. It's not going to work. And government is very much aware of it. So uh, how do we address this digital divide? We were talking briefly about kids who could afford to have internet and all these connections and those who don't. So how do we address this digital uh, divide in a mass scale? See, where it is actually digital divide is really an issue of infrastructure, right? One mm -hmm. aspect is to invest in infrastructure. So that at least access is assured no matter where the child is living. Now that is something uh, that the governments can easily take up with corporate sector and other uh, corporate social responsibility and other such foundation, plus their own funds. The first step would be to develop the digital infrastructure in the schools, even before going into the learning. And that is some, like many areas, while electricity is there in every village, more or less in the state, there are some hamlets in tribal districts which still do not have access to roads, bridges, and they, they are getting cut off during the monsoon. Hmm. So how will digital learning work here is something that the infrastructure will have to be connected through the cloud internet and all, even in such remote villages, and it is possible. We have not looked at the government has not looked at it so far, but I'm sure the government is considering investing in digital infrastructure. Once that is in place, then it is a question of making it available, accessible, and affordable to the parents, the institutions, the teachers, and other stakeholders in the community. So if we talk about a village, a gram panchayat, for example, which is the lowest level of governance, that information about uh, digital literacy must come down even to the level of the gram panchayat, mm. which today is not the case then we can think about a hybrid model where digital and face-to-face -face can go together. Hmm. And the idea is to also break the myth, Nivedita, that children are super spreaders and that schools are super spreaders. We have to break the myth until the infrastructure comes into play. And for that, this kind of a community interaction, community engagement of teachers, the school management committee, the children and the parents is what is going on now in our 100 schools spread over four districts representing different topographies. All of this will go on while all teachers have been asked to get two doses of vaccination compulsorily done on a priority as equivalent to the frontline workers of the health system. So teachers being considered emergency workers, just like the ASHA and the Anganwadi, is also part of this project. So if teachers are vaccinated, if parents are vaccinated, the chances are very less that the child will get infected. Or that the school will become a super spreader. Or that the school will become a super spreader. We already stressed that India had an educational crisis before and the COVID-19 pandemic 
is increasing it. So yes. can you tell us a little bit about the issues Indian education system had and how the COVID-19 has made it worse? Uh, when you talked about vulnerable families, then definitely the children of those vulnerable families, in their case, already the poverty levels have only got worse. And therefore, the first thing the parents did was get their children out of school and therefore out of midday, midday meals and into jobs. That is the first thing that they did because their own livelihoods were at stake, right? Yeah. In the terms of remote learning, again, we've seen lack of devices and limited internet has actually meant that these vulnerable children do not have access to the learning opportunities. Some of the older children, according to our own uh, survey that I was mentioning of November 2020, have already started earning. And uh, our report that I was mentioning, the SCRT UNICEF rapid assessment shows that 16% of the children were already working outside of their homes with the risk of never coming back to school. Uh, and then given that in the pandemic, many earning members have either lost their jobs, have lost a family member. So the capacity of the family to access basic facilities is also limited. And therefore, it will impact on good nutritious food, on uh, a level of uh, medical health, uh, health-seeking behavior, and of course, um, education. This is what we're already seeing. Like I said, digital divide is an infrastructural issue which is, requires a longer-term vision and planning. But in the very um, interim period or in the very short term, we could also look at provision, provisioning of data to families and teachers, providing digital literacy for families, and also equipping teachers with skills to use these devices while addressing the needs of those without devices. So I'll give you a concrete example. We, in this pandemic, we did what is called a reading campaign. The idea was through radio sets, a set of books was sent across to all the you know, focus districts and they would all come together and through the radio, hear the stories of, or as it was being told by either Danganwadi or the school teacher to a group of children. So somewhere a community radio was used, somewhere a television was used, or somewhere the book itself, the storybook itself was used and it was in the local language. So these are some examples of how you can tide over the crisis until infrastructure comes in. And by the way, the reading campaign has, has been very successful and there is a lot of demand from other districts who are not part of this focus intervention to say, send this to us also, we will also do. We can also, you know, look at developing the first assessing the learning levels of the child because every, like I said earlier, education has to be child-centric and not even school-centric. And irrespective of which grade they are, we have to start with learning plans for every child. And that is a systematic step towards remedial measures that are needed uh, both at the level of the child and at the level of the teacher to support that child. And finally, of course, the hybrid model, which will ensure that schools continue, kids continue to learn in schools. So how do we address the underlying problem that the children are not getting the good education they need? Even if the pandemic wasn't there, they wouldn't have gotten a good education. How do we address that underlying problem? See, see, there are some structural problems which are going to take longer than mm. even the pandemic. And Nobody, uh, as of today, can say that the pandemic will be over in 2021 or will finish in five years, 10 years, or it will become the new normal. It will become endemic. 
But until such a time, I think enough lessons have been learned both by the practitioners as also by the policy planners in the government of what to do. And one of the things that they will need to do straight on is the infrastructure strengthening in schools. And second, remedial packages for the children, but also capacity building for the students to ensure that those who have been left out so far in the pandemic are brought back. And those who are already affected before the pandemic are also given child-wise learning plans. Because those who are already bad before the pandemic have only got worse now. So how do we address that? That is what I'm talking about, the remedial program. No, When we do child-level plans, hmm. you know, for every child. So if there is a District X and the District X has, let's say, 500 schools, then it is the duty of the block education officer and the cluster-level coordinator within that cluster of schools to ensure that he or she knows exactly how many children, boys and girls of different ages and different learning abilities and disabilities are there in his or her area. First mm -hmm. is to map that, then to assess the learning levels currently for each and every child at that cluster level and for the grandparent child to also help in this process of learning assessment and then do the remedial so in different states, they are known by different names. Somewhere they call it a SETU program. SETU meaning a bridging program, which bridges the current level to the level that you would desire of uh, the child to reach that particular class. So the emphasis should not be pass the child continuously without assessing the learning. Now the focus has to be on learning and not just passing the grades. It's not an exam. It is starting from where the child is now to bring it up to a level according to an education protocol that you can say, yes, this child should be in grade three or grade four or grade five. You said that you shouldn't just pass the kids on to the next standard and you should have a reevaluation of them right now. Mm -hmm. But almost every state promoted all of them. Is that a bad policy? See, it's no question of good or bad. It is as part of the right to education. Every child was entitled to mm -hmm. going to school to be enrolled in school. But uh, the emphasis should not be just on enrollment and attendance. It should also be on learning, right? Yeah. And that is why this child-centered plan has become more relevant now than ever before. Even if it existed prior to the pandemic, but the focus was how do we churn out children from one class to the other, the other class, because I have my targets to achieve. But in a that is in a right to education perspective as it was conceived. But now with the, in the pandemic times, we will have to revisit the right to education. And there is also the new education policy, by the way, which has been announced most recently, which has a focus on functional and learning and numeracy skills, FLN. So that one is actually bringing back the emphasis on learning plans for the child. I'm hoping that all states governments will start adapting their learning strategies to FLN needs. And then it should make a difference because unless a child has basic foundational literacy and numeracy skills, there is no point of just passing the grades. Grades don't matter now as the quality. So now that you mentioned the new education policy, does that talk a lot about how to, it came in the middle of COVID-19 also. Yes. So how much does it talk about addressing the issues of COVID-19 and the issues related to infrastructure and education? See, the issues of uh, the functional literacy, FLN that is mentioned in NEP is actually born out of the pandemic time. So hmm. it is put in the context of the pandemic. So it 
Therefore, it is very, um, uh, what shall I say, it's very um, relevant in today's times. Plus, there is also a focus on the early childhood education, which should happen before the child comes to primary school, right? So the Anganwadi system, yes. They're giving yeah, a lot of importance to that, yes. To early childhood. So it's not just about starting from grade one, but mm. about preparing the child with basic foundational literacy and numeracy skills that will help the child uh, enter class one with a level of confidence. So these two things, the focus on ECE and the focus on FLN in the NEP is going to help actually uh, bring about that change in the education system. How do we get those children who dropped out of school because of COVID to come back to school? How will, how can we get them to return? See, if uh, the focus of the children going to work is from our elementary schools, right? Yeah. So they are still in the learning age, right? Yeah. Even before the pandemic, you did have overaged children coming to smaller classes than appropriate for that age. We still had that even before the pandemic. So even now that problem is not going, but if the school becomes an interesting place for them to learn, it should be possible for them to stop the livelihood and come back. And of course, simultaneously improve the incomes in the hands of parents. So one of the issues in this process is getting employment guarantee for the parents while giving education guarantee to the children. So would something like a cash transfer work, like get your children back to school, here some money for it from the government, like a short-term measure? You see, the, uh, it is already working, uh, you know, especially in the case of the children of migrants in Maharashtra, the education department provided a cash transfer of some 8,500 rupees per child to the relative, be it the grandfather or the uncle or the aunt who was taking care of the child in case the child did not migrate along mm -hmm. with the parents. And that money was meant for his or her upkeep, toiletries, and uh, you know any medical assistance that will be needed. While the food, etc., was also not necessarily costed, but that amount of cash transfer went into the bank account of the caretaker or the caregiver of that child. So Was this for the year or was it monthly? Monthly, monthly. Okay, 8,000 rupees per month. Yes, 8,500. Okay, okay 8,500 per month. Okay. It hmm. went into the account of the child who did not accompany the parents for migration. So should this be expanded to all children then? I mean, yeah, it should be expanded, but it's not that it's without its flaws because, hmm. uh, you know, the grandparents, for example, are already by that definition old enough, old as an agent who yeah. might or might not be able to uh, provide immediate medical assistance, for example, to the child should the child need it. Hmm. But at least there was this sum of money that was all allocated to the ac bank account of that caretaker of that family or the caregiver of that family. But at the same time, we also developed whom we call Bal Mitras. You know, they are friends of the children and they were also from that community where the child lives with the grandparents. And hmm. these Bal Mitras help in the evening after the children came back from school to take part in recreation, to help them with their studies and, you know, provide them a phone, a connection to talk with their parents now and then. So the concept of the Balmitra has also been re recognized as something that should go parallel with the cash transfer to the family. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
that was rajeshwari chandrasekhar chief of unicef maharashtra who joined us today to discuss the impact of the covid-19 pandemic the lockdown and the effect it had on children you can listen to our podcast which cover a range of topics on spotify google podcast or any other service until the next time this is divinita signing off